We've seen major health reforms in healthcare reforms in the past six years. In 2006, Massachusetts passed a law requiring all residents to have health insurance. And on the federal level, the Affordable Care Act was passed by Congress and upheld by the Supreme Court earlier this year, extending similar requirements nationwide. Joining us to talk about how these reforms are impacting the health care we receive, Jim Purcell, former CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, Rhode Island. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Mindy. And David Ream, CEO and president of Hope Health. Welcome, David. Good morning. Well, first, let's talk briefly about the components to the Massachusetts health care law passed in 2006, since much of the federal Affordable Care Act is based on this legislation. Who wants to start? Go ahead, uh, I'll start. Um, Massachusetts health care reform was, was really quite a, a leap of faith. Uh, what happened was that the statute mandates nearly every resident of Massachusetts have state-regulated minimum level of health insurance, uh, free insurance for anyone who earns less than 150% of the federal poverty level. Um, They established an independent public authority called the Connector, the Health Insurance Connector. Uh, The Connector is essentially a broker that assists in connecting individuals who need coverage with insurers who give coverage. There are tax penalties on residents who fail to obtain insurance and tax penalties on employers with more than 10 full-time employees who fail to give a minimum level of insurance. And the Commonwealth Care Program for low-income people up to 300% of federal poverty level. So it essentially greatly expanded the level of access to health insurance. um, And so far, it's actually done better than expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And from a a provider perspective i've i've uh you know i've, I've run healthcare organizations in different parts of the country and it's actually remarkable here the number of patients that we encounter that have no coverage or access to coverage are very low compared mm-hmm. to other parts of the country and it's much less of an issue in massachusetts yeah. than and it I, is elsewhere and as you said this this really provided access to healthcare but we still have that cost factor that so many oh, people are do. struggling with there is uh, first of all I think whether you're talking about the Massachusetts Health Care Reform Act or Romney Care or Obamacare, um, every civilized nation should provide access to quality health care to all of its citizens. I, I don't think any of us disagree with that. And it, it's, it's a shame that the United States has taken so long to move in that direction. Uh, that being said, the real issue in health care is cost. And every seven years, health insurance premiums for the same level of coverage double. Mm. And we are now breaking $20,000 a year for full boat family coverage. So there are tremendous cost issues. So the Affordable Care Act was passed and upheld in the Supreme Court and has many of the same components as mass health care legislation. So how does the Affordable Care Act impact Massachusetts residents? I think not so much. Massachusetts, uh, actually Massachusetts could probably feel a little bit peeved because they spent a lot of money without federal subsidization and getting to where the federal act now requires people to go. But they were, you know, Massachusetts should be proud of itself. It, it, It really took an aggressive step. And now most Massachusetts citizens are covered with some form of coverage. It is still going to uh, provide changes in Medicare and Medicaid. That will be a big impact in Massachusetts. And um, 
it will provide further subsidies for people that are in the exchanges now so that it will take some of the heat off mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Yeah, I, th- I think that the Massachusetts will begin to feel the impact of ACA uh, going forward. And, and we're going to feel it in some ways uh, ahead of the rest of the country. And it's because we're, we are ahead of the rest of the country. So much of what um, other states are, are really actually, some of them are, are absolutely just beginning to scramble to respond to this. Massachusetts is clearly clearly in, in good shape, and it, and it appears in a number of ways. Um, I, I think the things that are going to begin to impact cost and also have the potential to improve quality of care are some of the things I think the public has less been focused on because the political debate's mm-hmm. been around the health care coverage issues right. and so on. Um, but the the innovations in care delivery and care financing that are starting to take place, um, an example that's been in the news and, and is here in Massachusetts are accountable care organizations. And uh, we're we're leading the the country. There are 32 of them that have been approved around the country. Nine of them are here in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's because of the 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 change that has been underway here. So so organizations are more prepared to do it, and so on. And those are those are ways in which they encourage healthcare providers to come together to coordinate care, track the outcomes, beneficial outcomes for patients, but avoid. Um, unnecessary duplication, um, prevent unnecessary emergency room and hospitalizations, and so on. So I, I think we're, we're um, as a state, we'll probably begin to feel and see the, the impact of those sorts of things faster than others. And part of the most recent law, actually, is to, um, is to strongly encourage the creation of accountable care organizations here in Massachusetts at a state level and, uh, and medical homes, which is another version of coordinated care around primary care um, mm-hmm. models. So I, I think that's where we'll begin to feel right. the impact. And when we're, when we're talking about accountable uh, care organizations, we're talking about sort of integrated health care plans, right, where you're looking at everything. Just like the community health centers. Yeah, an accountable care organization, it, it's an old idea, but it's a new idea. Um, as a former CEO of a Blue Cross plan, speaking in public, I had to come up with a fairly concise definition of health care reform, and I've got it down to four sentences. <laughs> you cannot reform health care until we change how we deliver health care. Today, it's piecemeal. We don't communicate. We can't change how we deliver health care until we change how we pay for it. Fee-for-service is the root of all evil. We pay doctors and hospitals to do more things rather than outcomes. Can't change how we pay for it until we have agreed-upon measures, quality care, and outcome. We don't. We should. And we can't measure quality care and outcome without electronic medical records. You do those four things, you will change how we deliver care. And accountable care organizations are the sweet spot in that because they are a multidisciplinary integrated delivery system that takes responsibility for an assigned population for every bit of health care it gets and they take on risk they take on risk that if they do not change the needle in the health of their population they will make less and if they do a really good job for the health of their assigned population they hit a home run financially as well Mm -hmm. starting to incent quality care outcome rather than doing more things. Right. We're talking about health care reform. Our toll-free number, if you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question, 866-999-4626. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address is thepoint at wgbh.org. 
Uh, might we see some changes or cuts to provisions in the health care legislation as the federal government tries to get control of the deficit? Oh, I think uh, there's no question that the um, the fiscal cliff that is that is all over the news uh, it, it could in, in fact have a significant impact on on the direction of health care um, going forward. Uh, if nothing happens, um, all all providers will get uh, an, an additional two percent rate cut. We've all gotten rate cuts out of the ACA, and on top of that, we'll all get additional two percent rate cuts annually for. Um, I think it's through 2021. Um, so that's a that would have a significant impact in and of itself. But I, th- it's it seems the, the the tea leaves are you know are, are being read, uh, you know, pretty actively down in Washington these days. I think most people think that we probably won't just walk over that cliff. That some extension, some version of that will will um, modify it. But ultimately. The, the the financial the fiscal challenges that that it represents have to be addressed, and that likely will come back in, mm-hmm. in, a, in again impact um, healthcare and Medicare and Medicaid uh, yeah. going forward. And, and I think in general, most people are in agreement that the Massachusetts healthcare legislation has been a success, as we mentioned, expanding coverage uh, to nearly all residents and increasing access to preventative care as well. But costs, as we mentioned, big issue. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation report, per capita health spending in Massachusetts is 15% higher than the national average, and we have the highest individual market premiums in the country. So let's talk about how Massachusetts is addressing health care costs. We have the, uh, this, the, this new reimbursement uh, model. Yeah, yeah that, um, a number of the insurers in Massachusetts are trying to get their arms around this by changing from fee-for-service to something else that will incent maybe doing less things but having better outcomes. And um, I, I know the Blue Cross of Massachusetts – uh, has a quality care contract with a number of hospitals. They also are trying to direct patients to lower-cost, high-quality hospitals as well. Remember when I said uh, one of the necessities of being able to reduce costs and reform health care is to measure and pay based upon quality care and outcome. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's the wrong thing to go directly after costs because we did that in the 90s with... Uh, uh, with the uh, H- HMOs, mm-hmm. and people were fearful that they were getting lower quality coverage. I think if you give higher quality care and better outcomes, the cost will follow. So the trick will be how do we organize and pay in order to change the paradigm from doing more things to quality care and outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the accountable care organization is the way to go. I think hospitals in Massachusetts are moving in that direction, as are large physician groups, too. And I think hospice organizations such as David's organization, they stand in an ideal location to be a major part of that. Hospice up to now has been greatly underused mm-hmm. and somewhat misunderstood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and that's That seems to be the case. The, it's been astounding. I've been in this is my 27th year <laughs> in hospice, and it seems like 25 of those years, you know, we've been uh, trying hard to convince the world that we, we had something of value that, that could really could really make a difference. Um, and and that's, that's overstating it some. I mean, we've, we've come a long, long way. However, in the last year, the, the environment has truly shifted. 
um, having conversations with you know hospital administrators and chief medical officers and uh, physicians and um, you know people putting together ACOs and they're all very interested in in having hospice participation, having access to it, full utilization. They're recognizing that in fact the way we have been delivering care for all these years is the model that um, that needs to be expanded. And so um, we're very excited. We we really think that. Um, both, both we think this will probably drive greater access to hospice care right. for, for the patients that need it and are eligible for it. But also, we're excited because we as an organization, and it's why we're now Hope Health and not just right. just hospice anymore, we're trying to take the that um, sort of core competence as an organization and, and leverage it to provide new programs that reach out to uh, seriously ill patients and and can operate in this new environment. Mm-hmm. One of the things, too, just going back to the hospice thing for a minute, a lot of people kind of, it, it was that denial thing partly, uh, you know, waiting till absolute necessary, till there's no, you know, nothing, no hope left. And really, we've got studies now that show when you've got palliative and hospice care, the end of life issues are so much different than, than those who wait to that last second. No, actually, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 um, uh, th- that misperception has cost us in many ways. Um, it actually increases life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, palliative care, good, good palliation improves response to treatments um, uh, so that so there really isn't a downside to it. And that's the other thing is that we're, we're also getting um, frequent requests and serious interests in developing palliative care services for patients not yet eligible for hospice. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're actually just developing one of those relationships just now. We're just finalizing the, and just getting it started. And we have um, f- five other um, significant healthcare organizations coming to us saying, help us develop this because mm-hmm. it's, it's clearly a need that can benefit everyone. And, and doesn't this highlight healthcare reform? Because how do we pay in a way that will incent primary care and the doctors and hospitals to get terminally ill patients out of ICUs or hospital beds earlier and into a more gentle, loving mm-hmm. environment where they can die with dignity or get palliative care. Right now, all the incentives are to keep them in the hospital to get woken up every four hours for blood pressure and medications and that sort of thing. And to the extent that a terminally ill patient has the family support, how better mm-hmm. than to be with the people that they love and to get the kind of attention but it's it's all about how we pay to incent it's a tough tough conversation for a primary mm-hmm. care doctor to have um, it makes it a little easier if if we require this as part of some sort of an ACO that there be a combination and that they get paid for it because mm-hmm. this is hard work mm-hmm. to sit with a family and yep. say it's time. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, David, how does the, the Affordable Care Act impact your funding, or do we know yet? <laughs> we do. <laughs> um, actually, uh, the uh, and we've already begun to experience it. When it was passed, um, there are uh, 2% rate increase reductions every year for hospice rates in Medicare through 2019. That's already in place. We already experienced the first one of them. Um, last year, and that will continue to happen to us every year. Um, what that means is that it essentially guarantees that the rate adjustments that we get annually from the Medicare system, and there's a there's a complex formula that produces those those rate adjustments, um, is pretty much guaranteed to be below 
our, our, our rate of cost increase annually. So what it means is we are going to have to, as an organization, as a hospice organization, we have to become more effective and more efficient in delivering care and managing our costs internally. And we as an organization, um, uh, we saw this coming, we've modeled it financially, we've developed a plan to be able to do it because we're committed to maintaining our quality of care, our admission standards, which are the widest possible, which increases our cost. Um, and uh, and so to do that, we're, we have, uh, are aggressively seeking to grow the organization so that we can achieve economies of scale and, and therefore maintain the quality of care and the commitment to our patients that we always have. That's a tough challenge, though, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. But healthcare is, uh, healthcare is not going to get easier. It's going to get more, more interesting and challenging yeah. uh, as we go forward. So, Jim, how is this new payment system changing the way we receive care? And is it? Well, um, you know, one half of the equation is what we talked about, which was, you know, what do we do to change the delivery of health care? But there's a whole other side of the equation. That is our own personal responsibility to take better care of ourselves, to live healthier lives, uh, exercise, diet, and accessing the health care system responsibly. Um, this is huge. And right now, because of the very strange nature of health insurance and financing of health care, the consumers of health care generally do not see any additional cost despite how they access the system. So why not ask for an MRI? Why not ask for a CAT scan? But maybe if the incentives are different, someone might say, rather than pay the $500 copay, I think I'll take some aspirin and see if this pain goes away. We're not rationing care, and that is the R word. What we're trying to do is have wiser care based upon an entirely different set of incentives. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, the big issues too, cost-wise, is how many people use the emergency room as their doctor's office? You, you know, under the Massachusetts uh, health care reform, uh, emergency room visits have gone down almost 10%, yeah. mm-hmm. which yeah. shows that if, if the right message is sent both to the primary care doctors, which we have a shortage of, mm-hmm. and the individuals, that by far it's better for your health and it's better for you financially to see the primary care doctor and there is access, mm-hmm. then that makes it work. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that with people who don't have coverage. Right. Right. Oh, God. And, 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 of course, we've just launched um, a new program focused exactly on that. It's called Hope House Calls, and it's providing primary care to people in their homes that are unable to access primary care in a physician's office. And that's a population that is heavy, are heavy users of emergency rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and many, many, many of those visits can be avoided by, cause, because they're, they're going there really for mm-hmm. things that good primary care can manage very right. successfully. So that's, that's one example of a, of a service that uh, this environment is encouraging yeah. and innovating, and it's, we're getting a great response well, to it. It's kind of like the whole prevent, you're, you're talking healthy lifestyle, and there are so many um, conditions and diseases we have right now that are preventable. Uh, with with your exercise and healthier eating and us paying a little more attention. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and insurers, the, the five top spends on drugs, four of them are directly behaviorally related. Whether it's the statins for your cholesterol or your blood pressure, or the SRIs such as, uh, you know, Prozac, et cetera. These are, these shouldn't be a life sentence, but they should be a platform for people to then take the steps necessary to get off those drugs. But quite frankly, most of us, 
Mm-hmm. We start taking uh, Lipitor, and we start taking Diavan, and we start taking an SRI, and we keep taking them yeah. for the rest of it's our part, lives. part of our culture, isn't it? Just give me a pill to fix that. <laughs> I don't right. want to have to do that other hard work. <laughs> but uh, Yeah. All right. Let's talk to Joel, who's giving us a call from Brewster. Hi, Joel. Uh, hi. Um, can, <clears throat> can people take uh, uh, for granted that Medicare is expert and knowledgeable enough that they know what medical treatments costs amount to and that when they pay um, a provider uh, a sum of money and that provider accepts it as payment in full, that their costs have indeed been covered? Um, Absolutely not. And I don't think... Well, I, I don't think the federal government, I think the federal government is trying to force providers to reduce their costs. The, the federal government is so big under Medicare and Medicaid that the only way that they can regulate, truly regulate the cost of health care is generally not through quality care and outcomes, but it's by reducing either what they pay doctors and hospitals or what they pay insurers to do the Medicare and Medicaid stuff. And as as David said, um, I, I, I know enough about Hope Health that they are very frugal with regard to their expenses, and yet they are looking at almost 10 years of 2% reductions each year. The federal government is forcing providers to reduce their costs and leaving it up to providers to figure out just how to do that. So I, I think the answer is no. I don't think the federal government is even trying to do that. If you see what they do with physician fees, each year come around March, they threaten to reduce physician fees by 20%. And then in comes the doc fix, where somebody comes in and finds money so that they don't do it. But each year it comes back. It is it is the height of foolishness. Yeah. And I, I think we've got a long way to go to resolve that. But again, it's not so much what you pay providers, it's how you pay them and what you pay them for that's really going to be important. Right. Joel, thanks for the call. 866-999-4626 is our toll-free number. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address is thepoint at wgbh.org. We do have still have some unmet medical needs here on the Cape. Um, as you mentioned, the supply of primary care physicians in the state is an issue. A 2011 Kaiser Family Foundation report found one in five adults reporting problems finding a doctor who would see them in 2009. And portions of Barnstable County are still considered medically underserved. And mm-hmm. then there's the mental health care aspect where we really fall short. And I know that's a national problem, not just... Uh, uh, so. And, and I guess maybe doctors are looking at, you know, it used to be, I had a friend who was married to a doctor. He says, oh, I married a surgeon. I thought it was set. And every year I see his salary go down and down and down. And, <laughs> and so there are fewer people going into, you know, to school to become psychiatrists. So we've got a huge issue here. There, there is. There absolutely is. Actually, it's interesting because Massachusetts has um, the highest ratio of primary care physicians um, to, uh, to residents in the country statewide. But when you look at it more closely, the vast majority of those are in the Boston area. And when you move out of the Boston area, that changes dramatically, and particularly here on Cape Cod uh, and in southeastern Massachusetts and Plymouth and Bristol counties, um, there is absolutely a, a shortage of primary care. And that's that's a reflection in part um, of, a, of a shortage nationally. Mm-hmm. And it, it has to do with the fact that we have under-rewarded 
um, primary care, mm-hmm. um, as as we have behavioral health, psychiatry, and so on for yeah. so many years, that um, you know the, the incentives drive behavior, and so we have fewer and fewer of those practitioners. I think there's there's some awareness of that. There's a growing concern about it. Um, it hasn't yet translated into the kind of action that's going to really solve the problem, though. Yeah, from an insurer standpoint, um, the system really is perverse. And I, I know, you know, insurers aren't the most popular player in the healthcare system, and most people aren't going to go to the prom with us. But uh, <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is, we really did try to take steps and are trying to take steps to change things. The most perverse thing is that the lowest reimbursed doctors are the ones that make the most hard calls. Mm. That's primary care and behavioral health. They do what's called evaluative services, not operating on somebody. And sure, operating is a big deal, but they're the ones that sit down with you and your loved ones and look you in the eye and say, how are you doing? You know, are you doing okay? Um, and they are the ones that will take the tests necessary to determine. They catch the cancers. They're the mm-hmm. first ones to do that. Then they refer you out. Uh, they follow up. They don't get paid for some of this. They get paid for the wrong things. They get paid for maximizing office visits. So the more people they can push through their office in a given day under the current fee-for-service system, the more they get paid. That's the wrong incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the CAPE, I think... Once we get it, and once we start making primary care the best paid physician in the system, and you co-locate and integrate behavioral health and pay that well, Mm -hmm. once you start combining behavioral and physical health in in a rational setting, you are really going to get results. Mm -hmm. How how else do you treat a 14-year-old pre-diabetic, obese, depressed girl. Mm-hmm. By going twice a year to a primary care doctor, I think not. No. I think you need to have a co-located behavioral health specialist and the doctor communicating with each other about what they're determining and how, coming up with a combined game plan and working with the family to increase self-esteem and good health practice. Yeah. We're back to that community health center it, model, aren't it, we? Absolutely. I was just <laughs> going to say that the, the one place on the Cape that that really happens, um, uh, and is starting to happen more broadly, are in our community health centers. Um, although, interestingly, um, uh, 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 Gosnold has just announced a new program mm-hmm. to co-locate behavioral health in primary care settings. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, I was just talking to the, the CEO and the person in charge of that yesterday. And uh, that's an exciting program. And you know, and one we're looking towards to to try to collaborate with going forward as well, because I, I do think Jim's right on that. Mm-hmm. That's that's the where we can begin to locate that. Yeah. You got about thirty seconds, Jim. You get the last uh, word, Mindy. It, it, when I first met David and his staff, um, I I didn't know what to expect, but I I know they do God's work. I have been so incredibly impressed with where they are at vis-a-vis healthcare reform and their forward thinking. I came in thinking, oh. You know, I'll tell them a thing or two. They are well ahead of anything that I've seen, and I think the Cape should be very, very proud of them. Um, they, they will have a place in the future. They will be utilized in a wiser way, and I, I think you should be very pleased to have them here. Well, more to come on this issue for sure. This is a day I wish we had a little more time. Jim Purcell, former CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, Rhode Island, and David Ream, CEO and president of Hope Health. Thank you both for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mindy. I'm Mindy Todd. Thanks for listening. The Point airs weekdays at 9.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. 
We're also on Facebook at The Point WCAI. The Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Treidel and Jenny Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. The Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR station, a service of WGBH.